grab your Bibles and let's turn to James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18 this morning. And uh, I'd like to read these words and then pray for our time together. So hear the word of God beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, thank you for this word. It lifts up before us your holiness and your righteousness and your goodness. It exposes the depth of our own depravity and it celebrates your grace in rescuing us not according to anything done on our part, but solely by your grace. And I pray that it would help us in the midst of our trials to speak rightly of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So James is continuing his counsel to the church as they face various trials. God wants us to be full of wisdom as we face our various trials. Um, and this particular wisdom is, is, a, is, a, is of the kind that builds into us Christ-likeness. It makes us more like Jesus. God wants to build a moral fortitude in the church that won't break under pressure of the various trials, but remain steadfast in their obedience. We are 11 years old now as a church, and more trials will certainly come. And this text we can take to us, we can take this morning as a word to us through James that will help us to remain steadfast through the trials to come. One thing that we need to understand this morning in this, in this passage is the connection between trial and temptation. In Greek, the vocabulary is the same for trial and temptation. So when you see, so since verse 2, we've been looking at trials. We ended on trials last week in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When you see the shift from verse 
uh, 12, talking about trials, to verse 13, talking about temptations, we shouldn't think that James has just moved on to an entirely different subject. Rather, he's still giving us a proper perspective of trials. And he's pointing out that every trial also brings with it temptations. To this point, we've only, we've only seen God's purpose for our trials. God's purpose for our trials is to produce steadfastness, to make us more like Jesus. The external pressures of trial, when we respond to them in faith and love for God, they make us more like Jesus. But in the very same trials, we also face temptation to sin. We also face internal enticements toward evil. Every trial that we face becomes either an occasion to advance in Christ-likeness or slide backward into sin. The question then in every trial is how will you and I respond? Will we count Jesus worthy of our endurance or will we settle for lesser pleasures and blame God? Apparently, some in the church here that James is talking to are not responding very well to their trials. Uh, We see it there in verse 13. People are facing trials. Some of them are saying that the trial must be God luring them into evil. I am being tempted by God, they're saying. Maybe maybe you've experienced this. Maybe someone close to you has uh, voiced this in a time of weakness or confession. It, It could express itself in a number of ways. God is just giving me way too much right now. Or, if God wants me to stop doing blank, He's just going to have to make me. Or, Sometimes I wonder if God wants me to stop this sin. Thoughts like this. They, they, they call God's goodness into question. I am being tempted by God, some are saying. It sounds a bit like Adam, doesn't it? God finds Adam in his sin, hiding in the shame. And he asks, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what does he say? The woman you gave me. He knows who made the woman. We know who controls and governs all things according to his will. We know who is sovereign even over the hardship and the evil that comes to us. The cancer, the migraine, the loneliness, the separation, the sins of others, the persecution. We know who is sovereign. It's God. Is God then at fault when trials become occasions for us to slide backward into sin? And James's word to us this morning is basically, don't go there, my beloved. Don't go there. God is always good and gracious in your trials, and He wants your salvation, not your destruction. God is always good and gracious in your trials, and He wants your salvation, not your destruction. How do we know this? Well, James's first response comes from a right knowledge of God's character. A right knowledge of God's character. 
If anyone knows God as he really is, they cannot possibly charge him with tempting them toward evil. So he points them back to to this basic Christian discipleship here. Verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil, he says. Everything about evil repulses God's holy character. It's impossible for evil to sway God's character, his morality in any way whatsoever. It's true that other places in Scripture require us to say that God permits evil for a time, that evil is never outside of God's control, that He even plans evil, such as the evil that we see in the crucifixion of His own Son. But in all of this, God can never be charged with committing evil Himself. God is never the author or approver of sin. To state James's point positively, God remains holy, separate from sin, devoted to what is good. So that also means that when God brings trials into our lives, that his purpose can, for them can never be evil. It's never his will that, that we fall into sin. Verse 13 also says that he, tempt, that he himself tempts no one. That is, tempts no one toward evil. He's not denying that God brings the trial into our lives. He's denying that God does it with evil intent toward his children. He can't. It's an impossibility for God to have evil intent in anything that he does. More than that, though, look at what verse 17 says about God's character. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So if any gift is good or perfect, it comes from above. Coming down from above, from God. And that, and that right there says something about God. And what he's like. If, if you think back on Jesus' teaching for a minute, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good. His Son to rise. James seems to be calling our attention to God's generosity with this title, the the Father of Lights. He is the Father of the cosmic lights, sun, moon, stars, which, which every day are bearing witness to His generosity. Then, when He says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, He's now saying that God is immutable, unchangeable, And in particular, in this context, he seems to be unchangeable in relation to that generosity towards his children that he's been talking about. He's not like people that we can't always count on for good things. He's not like people who grow tired of giving good things. He's not like people who tend to give only when it's convenient for them. 
God is immutable, and that includes His unchanging generosity toward us. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from above. So he, He's not only holy, He's also always trustworthy to give good things to His people. And that's true when we're walking through trials. He is always trustworthy to give good things to His people. He said uh, in verse 4 that He wants us to be perfect. And here we see that it is God who gives perfect gifts to His children. Everything we need to endure trials so that they become occasions for Christ's likeness and not occasions for sin, God wants us to have it. James's words sound a lot like Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to handle, but with the temptation will also provide you the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. God's desire in the trials we face is never our destruction, never our falling into the very things that He hates. Well, then where does temptation originate? James tells us in verses 14 and 15 that temptation originates with the fallen human nature. We are to blame if our trials end up becoming temptation toward evil. Now later in James 4, verse 7, we do see that the devil is also involved in temptation. There are layers to this, but nobody submits to the devil's temptations without wanting to. We have only ourselves to blame. Nobody goes to hell because of the devil. They go to hell because of their own sins. They're they're responsible. So verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And we shouldn't just think of any desire. Some desires are good. James has in mind our own rebellious desires. He has in mind the internal impulse that we have to stray from Godward pursuits, to to stray from Christ's exalting obedience. All of us who are born in Adam have rebellious internal impulses. We have an inherent desire for evil. Even the Christian, the Bible says, still wrestles against the desires of the old flesh. The, the, the appetites of the old self. When we face the various circumstances of life, these rebel passions become a source of temptation. The, the words lured and enticed, they paint a, a memorable picture of what happens with our rebel desires. If you've ever been fishing, what's, what's important when you bait the hook? You got to hide the hook. You got to hide the hook to lure away the fish into your trap. Same here. Temptations, when temptation comes when our rebel passions, they want the bait. They lure us away from Christ toward whatever it is we're wanting above Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way in his, his book, Temptation. Temptation. 
With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And it is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. You've felt this before. I've felt this before. Perhaps you, you felt your rebel passions leading you astray this week. Your fixation on, on some sinful pleasure makes you forget the superior pleasures that are found at God's right hand. The experience, the taste, the attractiveness looks so good for the moment until it jerks your jaw out of place and leaves you to die on the shore. Verse 15 plays this out a little bit further and basically shows us what happens if we don't resist the temptation. So there's a point where we can fight and resist so that our rebel desires don't ever conceive and only the Christian who has the Holy Spirit can actually wrestle against wayward desires. Doug Moo writes that Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. So if we take the bait and allow our desires to keep taking us away from Christ, then we are on the path of destruction. Temptations will come with trials, the question is, will you allow it to take you into custody? So if you do, James says this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What is sin? We teach the kids in Sunday school, sin is rebellion against God. It's not just a guilty conscience, it is rebellion James defines sin in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, as anything contrary to God's law, anything contrary to God's will, and as also anything that undermines love for neighbor. So sin is always understood first in relation to God and second in relation to other people. So when our wayward desire can, when they when our wayward desires when they conceive it gives birth to rebellion against God and hatred for other people. We dethrone God from our hearts and we exploit everybody else for our own as our servants. That's sin. Then he says and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
I take that to mean spiritual death in the present and eternal death at the final judgment. Death is both a present spiritual experience that sin causes, a cutting off of life with God, of vibrancy with Christ. It's also future condemnation for those who continue in that without repentance. So notice this is the opposite of verse 12. Verse 12 said that steadfastness to Christ will gain you what? The crown of life. The crown of life, if you remain steadfast to Christ, verse 15, giving into temptation will gain you nothing but death. And he's warning Christians here. So we need to hear this. When our wayward desires toy with various pleasures, we're, we're, we're toying with death. My littlest girl knows that she's not supposed to go near the street. But she'll try. And you can watch her. She's slowly edging her way to the street. Maybe she has a stroller with her. She's gradually moving closer and closer, you know, looking over the shoulder to see if mom and dad are looking. And all along the way, she's taking that other little step toward the street. She thinks it'll be a thrill. No constraints out there. Don't have to worry about these lines in the driveway anymore. Without realizing that she's toying with death. When people reach over to click on a link to pornography or double look at another woman with lustful intent or daydream of what it'd be like in the arms of another husband, when people allow negative thoughts to turn bitter toward their brother, or fear what other people think of you over God, or place hope in the riches of this world, or consider just fudging the truth here and there just a little bit, or I just need to find another fix. We're not just toying with temporary thrills and temporary relief and escape. We are toying with death. We are toying, we are, we are throwing away life with Christ and we'll get nothing but death. The process here with desire, sin and death, if you need something more memorable, desire, disobedience, death, gives you some three D words there. Desire, sin and death, it reminds us of the initial rebellion of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise. So we see desires there. She took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. There's the sin Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Death. And they plunged us into the same rebellion. We're accountable to God because we have all sinned in Adam. Romans 5.12 
Our spiritual state by nature is just as bad as theirs after the rebellion. We're born with an inherent desire to rebel against our Creator, to follow our own desires into sin. And if that's true, then how could any of us survive? How could any of us overcome temptation and sin? How could any of us not allow temptation to conceive? Because once it conceives, it's going to give birth to sin. And once sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We're all doomed to death unless God's grace saves us. Unless God's grace saves us. So, so how do a people like us with rebel passions inside, how do we overcome temptation and sin? Well, the answer is we can't overcome temptation and sin in our fallen human nature, but God's grace is able to change our nature, which is good news. Verse 18 is probably one of the clearest examples of one of those good and perfect gifts that come down from above that we spoke about earlier. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And there's a great contrast here going on with between verse 18 and verse 15. It says, verse 15, the desire, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So that word there where sin brings forth death is the same word that's used here in verse 18 where God brings us forth by the word of, of truth. Sin is bringing forth death. Obviously, God brings us forth to life in himself. James doesn't use this, this term that I'm about to give you, but the church has called this supernatural act here regeneration. It needs to be a word you take and put in your vocabulary as a Christian. Regeneration. Regeneration is solely the work of God to create in the sinner new spiritual life in union with Jesus. I'll say that again. Regeneration is solely the work of God to create in the sinner new spiritual life in union with Jesus. God doesn't just improve a life that was present before. He gives us spiritual life that never existed before. The Old Testament spoke of this in terms of getting a new heart. Uh, by nature, where our hearts are, are hardened, a heart, we want to talk about heart for just a minute. The heart is the causal core of your personhood. It's what determines who you are and what you're inclined to do in life, your heart. By nature, that heart is hardened toward God. Our wills are dead to God. We're not inclined to listen to or obey His Word. Morally speaking, we're bent in on ourselves. But God has the power to summon new life into our soul, new life into that heart. Give us a new humble heart that treasures Jesus and loves doing God's will. The New Testament calls it the new birth. Have you heard of people use the word born again? New creation. 
life from the dead, passing from darkness to light and, and so on. The basis of our regeneration, this text tells us, is God. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth. Of his own will. It's not something that we do by our own works. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's a supernatural work that happens to us. We had about as much to do with our regeneration as Lazarus did with his life when Jesus called him out of the tomb. Nothing. Many of us likely remember the glorious day when we chose to follow Christ. But what's even more glorious about that day is that in and behind your choosing Christ is God's choosing you. God brought you forth and he deserves all the praise and glory for it. And the means he used, James says, is by the word of truth. By the word of truth. Our regeneration wasn't due to our works, but to God's will. And it also wasn't done by our wisdom, but by God's word. James calls it the word of truth, which Ephesians 1.13 says is the gospel of our salvation. It's the, word of the God, it's the Word of God in the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that gives life to people. The bad news we covered earlier already, we're all natural-born sinners. We have this inherent desire toward evil. But consider with me for a moment the good news of Jesus Christ and His power over sin and temptation. I mean, that's been our subject today. You see, our problem is that in Adam, we're all born with these rebel passions. We have an inherent desire to do evil. If humanity was ever to be saved, we must have another Adam. Who was like the first Adam in that uh, he's like the first Adam in our humanity. He is like us in our humanity. He is unlike us in our fallenness. We have to have this kind of Adam who's like us in our humanity so that he can be our representative, but not like us in our fallenness so that he can save us. Well, Jesus, the scriptures tell us, is that new and greater Adam. He was born holy. Jesus was free of all sin. He was free of actual sin, meaning that, he, that all that he desired and spoke and thought and did, it conformed exactly to the will of God. And he was free from all, get this, inherent sin. He was free from all actual sin, and he was also free of all inherent sin. He had no internal impulse to sin. He wasn't ever tempted by rebel desires within himself because he had none. No desire of his own would have ever conceived sin because all his desires were constantly in tune with the Father and constantly loving the Father. Yes, Jesus felt the appeal of the sinful proposals to thwart his affections for the Father, to doubt his own sonship, for example, in the wilderness. 
to abandon his mission altogether? The loud cries and the drops of blood in Gethsemane tell us that much. But never was he tempted by anything within himself. He, was lured, he, he wasn't lured and enticed by his own evil desire. As Hebrews tells us, Jesus is one who, because of his likeness to us, has been tested every way, only without sin. And that qualifies Jesus. That makes Jesus unique. There's nobody else like Jesus. That qualifies Jesus to be the superior representative of a new humanity that is set free from the bondage of sin. That qualifies Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. It's by his blood that we are cleansed. That qualifies Jesus to become our great high priest who is able to sympathize with your weakness and give you exactly what you need to overcome temptation. There's a reason he taught his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because he's got the power to do it. And he wants you to come to him as his high priest. That qualifies Jesus to be victorious over the devil's temptations, so that anyone united to him by faith shares in the same victory. John can say, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Overcome, how? In your union with Jesus. So that's good news to preach to yourself when you're facing temptation or when you're you're, you're going to, temptation to, to fall into sin in the midst of your trials. That's good news for anybody in here that needs rescue from rebel passions, rescue from sin, rescue from death. Trust in the one who has no rebel passions to save you. Trust in the one who never sinned but died for sins to save you. Trust in the one who died your death and then rose again never to die to save you. Victory over temptation and sin comes not by self-sufficiency, but by the sinless Savior. Jesus is the good news. And this is the word of truth that God uses to summon spiritual life in us. To create in us new spiritual life from beginning to end. And speaking of the end here, James also develops the goal of our regeneration. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is to say that the church is an outcropping of the new creation. You remember the first fruits in the Old Testament they would bring to the temple. They represented the crop that was coming. More was coming. Same for the church here. It's an outcropping of the new creation. God created the church to display, to put on display that he's got a purpose to redeem the creation. Mark Mark Dever recently put it this way, there's one place that we should look for the first fruits of heaven on earth, and that is the local church. This is who you are. It's where we catch the first glimpses of heaven's springtime blossoms. What's what's God's goal for you, believer? His goal is new creation glory. 
When trial comes into your life and you're tempted to question God's goodness and give in to sin, remember His grace in regeneration. He made you alive and He set you, he set you on a trajectory, not of destruction, but of glory, of new creation glory. That'll keep you going when everything in you just wants to quit in the midst of your trials. God's grace doesn't stop with making us a new creation. God's grace brings us into the new creation. The end of your regeneration isn't sin and death. It's a new morality that reflects the glory of a new creation of which you're already a part and of which you will one day enjoy in full. So to sum up where we've been, we can say this. The conclusion that says, in the midst of trial, I am being tempted by God, is wrong. First, because it misrepresents God's character. God is holy, and He is immutable in terms of His generosity towards you. Second, it is wrong because it fails to admit the sinfulness of man. We are responsible for all of our rebel passions. And now third, because it forgets the grace of God towards His people, towards His children. It loses sight of who He's made us to be, the first fruits of a people who will one day be without wayward desires in a new heaven and earth full of passion for God's glory. So let me now close with just a few exhortations before we take the supper together based on where we've been this morning. First, we must never blame God or find fault with Him in our sin. We must never blame God or find fault with Him in our sin or in our trials where we're being tempted. If if we fall into sin, we have only ourselves to blame. And that's important to remember in an age where it's very common for people to blame everything else for their sin except themselves. The psychiatrist is going to tell you to look outside yourself for what's wrong. The Bible tells us what's wrong is in here. It's in us. We are the problem. Our stance must be one of brokenness and humility over our own sin. Christians should be the first to take responsibility for their sin and not place the blame elsewhere, like on God or on the circumstances or on the people that God brings into our lives. And by doing this, we will be setting before the world a true picture of the fallen human condition. Our brokenness over our own sin and over the church's sin will help others see that man is truly fallen and in need of a Savior. If we're accountable for our rebel passions and our sin, then we need someone to save us. We don't just need moral self-improvement. We need someone to save us. Enter the gospel. Second, we must put to death our rebel desires. We must put to death our rebel desires. The Puritans used to talk about mortification and vivification as crucial parts of the Christian life. 
Mortify has kind of lost that meaning today. It means something like shame somebody. But mortification then, 17th century English, meant to kill. So they'd talk about mortification and vivification, putting to death sin and walking in godliness. John Owen would say, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no apathy and no, there can't be any apathy or, or laziness in the fight against sin or sin will be killing you. The Apostle Paul says it this way, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The deeds of the body there are are unrighteous things, uh, godless passions and, and, and whatnot. James highlights the need for Christians to fight with all their might not to get in, give in to their rebel desires. And from some of the experience that I've had giving in in my own wayward desires, from some of the pain I'm walking through right now as a pastor seeing the effects of sin in people's lives and marriages and parenting and health, We cannot grow apathetic in our fight against sin. All that sin brings is death. If we truly grasp that that death and and a loss of experiencing more of Christ's beauty and fullness in our lives, if we knew that stood behind every evil impulse, what might our fight against sin look like. Third, preach the word of truth to yourself and others. Preach the word of truth to yourself and others. If you're wondering how to put to death your rebel desires, this is the answer right here. We don't just say no to temptation. That's not fighting temptation. That's not putting anything to death by the Spirit. We don't just say no to temptation. We must also set our minds on the truth of God's Word and all the realities, the glorious realities that those truths stand for. We must fight with supernatural wisdom, not human wisdom. And we get that in the Bible. And we see here in our text that God uses the word of truth to bring new life. And I wish I had the time to develop this even more from Ezekiel 37 and the valley of dry bones coming alive at the word of God and the Spirit's breath. How does God summon new life into dead people? How does the Spirit awaken faith? He does it with a word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's Word gives new life. Don't, ne- no, don't neglect to give yourselves to it often. Don't listen to the flesh that will pack your day so full that you're not giving time to the Word of Truth. Don't be lured away from your study of His Word by the latest text message or Facebook update. 
Don't stay up all hours of the night watching your favorite video and complain the next morning when you can't stay awake when you open this book. Get out of those patterns. Find ways to make the Word part of your steady diet. Memorize it and wield it like a sword. And then speak it into the lives of others. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Lastly, we must exhort each other as a community. We must exhort each other as a community. Look at verse 16. I skipped it a while ago because it's going to come back to it here. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now that could be taken to say, Don't be deceived in thinking that you're okay with your rebel passions. You're not okay with your rebel passions. Don't be deceived. So it could point before it or it could be pointing after it. Don't be deceived in relation to God's generosity. We shouldn't deceive ourselves by thinking that God isn't good or that God won't provide. He's holy and unwavering in His generosity toward us. It could be saying both. But look more closely at the exhortation. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved. My beloved. Can you call each other that? My beloved. What's driving this exhortation of James? Love. Love for the brothers and the sisters. I want you to listen to this comment by Alec Motyer on verse 16. He says, Note how the addition of beloved strikes the note of urgency. The rich love which links the believer with the believer prompts concern for spiritual warfare and issues in a call to be clear-headed and open-eyed as to the realities of the situation. That's good. The love which links believer with believer prompts concern for spiritual warfare. Does our love for one another prompt, compel concern for spiritual warfare. And if it doesn't, how much are we loving one another, really? Love will abhor what is evil, and it will hold fast to what is good. The Lord's Supper is a great place to remember Christ's concern for all of His people. The Lord's Supper is also a great place to remember how much Christ's concern for all of His people 
should also become our concern. Why don't we take the supper today on that note?